our scriptures for today from 1 Kings uh, 19 and 2 Kings 2. Uh, so Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, and as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elisha went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. We all love a great mentor or apprenticeship story, don't we? These kinds of stories are absolutely everywhere. Stories of intentional discipleship. Uh, how many of you love the, the movie The Karate Kid? Anybody? You know, back in the day. Uh, and it just made you kind of long for a Mr. Miyagi in your life. You know, you just, you just love that. Or, or we can't get enough of, of Yoda uh, teaching Luke Skywalker how to, how to harness the force. It's just, just kind of written in our hearts that these, these kinds of stories. We love um, Gandalf working with Frodo. 
and, um, and Merlin working with King Arthur. And they go on and on and on. You can find these kinds of stories where there's this, this powerful mentor, or this, this person who's walking alongside, apprenticing this younger person. And we love these stories, I, I think, because they're written, God's written this kind of thing on our heart. And then we come to the New Testament, and what do we see? We see God as the greatest mentor, disciple maker, uh, apprenticer who's ever lived, Right? He's walking with his disciples. He's, he's eating with them, drinking with them, encouraging them, rebuking them. And that mentor is still, 2,000 years later, calling people to follow him. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Dave, these texts that, you're, that Paul read, they're not about Jesus at all. And you're right. They're about Elisha and his calling uh, to follow Elijah. But the call of Elisha has lots of similarities to when Jesus called his disciples. Just think about it for a second. When Elisha is called, both when Elisha is called and when the disciples are called, they're called to leave their, their work and just simply follow, right? They're called to leave what they know and go to what they don't know. They're called to leave relative security um, and go into a risky, uh, less secure kind of uh, lifestyle, um, at some point in both of their lives, the person that they're following, the person that's mentoring them, is just taken up into heaven right in front of their eyes, right? It happens with both Elisha and with the disciples, and then both of them are left to complete a task. There's lots of similarities here to the disciples in their call to follow Jesus. So you might say that the story of Elisha really points us forward to Jesus, and his choosing of the disciples, and then it points us forward to us here today as we seek to be disciples of Jesus, even now in 2024. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how to be a disciple. And of course, like I mentioned in the intro, this is timely because it's Lent, and Lent is a time of repentance. It's a time of fasting. It's a time of praying and giving and sort of getting our hearts right and resetting ourselves. And um, I think this is always a necessary thing to do each year, to really look at, am I really a disciple of Jesus? Because we can assume that we are, right? We can assume that we're really following Jesus, really being apprenticed to Jesus. But when you really stop and look at it, this is a tall order. It's a tall task. There's a lot involved in being a disciple of Jesus. And it's very, very difficult. So we're going to look at that together today and hopefully take inventory on our lives this Lent season. But additionally, you know, this is the big thing here at Life Church. Uh, this is our mission. This is why we exist as a church. We glorify Jesus by making disciples in our neighborhood and beyond. So this isn't like a little thing that we do. This is the big thing. This is the big task, the thing that we're all here for. And if you're ever going to make a disciple, you first have to be a disciple, right? So this is really, really important stuff. And so we're going to look at how to be a disciple here in this text. And I want us to notice four things that every disciple of Jesus must do. Just what Elisha had to do to follow and to be a disciple of Elijah. You got to burn the plow. You got to learn to serve. You got to be apprenticed and you got to receive the power. Okay, so burn the plow. First, what do we learn about Elisha from this passage? Well, we first of all, when we see him out plowing in his field, we learn he's a rich guy. He's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, which back then was a really, really large number of oxen. You got 24 oxen. Think of it being like heavy machinery, like you got multiple combines or multiple massive tractors to disc your fields with. That's what Elisha's got. He's a very wealthy guy, comes from a comfortable living, and look what he's getting called to. 
You know, Elijah had spent much of his life on the run. Remember, Jezebel wanted to kill him. He got all depressed, ran south, and, and uh, the Lord came and spoke to him. But he, was, he, was, he lived a life in constant danger. He was poor. He was stressed out. And so Elijah's called from this life of security into this life of insecurity, a life of very low risk to a life of lots of risk. And I think he knew it. When Elijah drapes his cloak on him, he knew what was going on there. And he knew it was going to be tempting to look back at what he had before. The life that he was going into was going to be tempting to look back and say, man, I, I really miss those days with the 24 oxen where I just had what I needed, right? And so what does he do? Well, he burns the plow and barbecues the oxen. He just instantly, he says, I'm going to throw a feast. We're going to eat it, and that's going to be the end of my farming operation. I'm not going back. And that's, what it's, that's what's necessary for every single one of us as a disciple. You've got to burn the plow. And, of course, this reminds us of when Jesus called his disciples, too. He called them to leave their boats, leave their nets, leave their tax collecting, whatever it was that they were doing, and come follow him. It wasn't like, yeah, you guys can do that during the week, and why don't you just spend your weekends with me? No, it was leave what you're doing and come and follow me. And famously, Jesus said, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy to be my disciple. Difficult words. Difficult words, but that's what it is. Like our life, our old life, it has nothing for us anymore, right? So you might as well burn the plow. You might as well barbecue the oxen and eat them because there's no going back. The Gospels are clear. There's no kind of following Jesus, there's no like, yeah, I'll kind of, you know, I'll halfway follow Jesus. Um, I'll, it, it's, it's 100%. It's sell everything you have, buy this field because there's buried treasure in it, right? That's, that's the parable. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to receive the kingdom of God into your life. It's abandon all else to get the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, And there's a story that really illustrates this well from the Moravians. The Moravians were a group of of German Christians at Herrenhut, and they famously started a 24-7 prayer vigil that birthed an enormous mission-sending organization, sent missionaries all over the world. But the story of the first two Moravian missionaries has become very famous. Listen to this. The Moravians had learned that the secret of loving the souls of men was found in loving the Savior of men. On October 8, 1732, a Dutch ship left the Copenhagen Harbor, bound for the Danish West Indies. On board were the, first, were the two first Moravian missionaries, John Leonard Dober, a potter, and David Nitschman, a carpenter. Both were skilled speakers and ready to sell themselves into slavery to reach the slaves of the West Indies. As the ship sailed away, they lifted up a cry that would one day become the rallying call for all Moravian missionaries. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. And they sailed away to sell themselves into slavery in order to reach the people of the West Indies. They burnt the plow. They barbecued the oxen. There was no looking back. Once Christ calls you, it will change your life forever. And this appears, this burning of the the plow, to be easy for Elisha. You know, the text doesn't give us a lot of detail about, like, he didn't seem to struggle with it. But I imagine this was really hard for him, right? We know from the, the biblical text, um, this was challenging for lots of people. Think of the story of the rich young ruler where he comes to Jesus like, what else must I do? And Jesus is like, well, you lack one thing. Just go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Simple. And he goes, ooh. 
that's not going to work for me. I can't do that. That's too costly. So he turns back. He turns away sad. It isn't easy to burn the plow. And perhaps you've been struggling with this aspect of discipleship or some component of it where you know the Lord is saying, I want you to burn the plow. I want you to not look back. I want you to have a feast with your oxen. Give it away. Be done with it. And you just, you're hesitating, you're resisting. That's okay. It's okay to admit it anyway because it's a struggle for all of us. It's not easy for any one of us. If you feel like you've got an internal tug-of-war going on, well, you're not alone. Listen to this prayer by Francois Fenelon, a French theologian. He writes this prayer of surrender. He says, my God, I want to give myself to you. Give me the courage to do this. My spirit within me sighs after you. Strengthen my will. Take me. If I don't have the strength to give you everything, then draw me by the sweetness of your love. Lord, who do I belong to if not to you? What a horror to belong to myself and to my passions. Help me to find all my happiness in you, for there's no happiness outside of you. Why am I afraid to break out of my chains? Do the things of this world mean more to me than you? Am I afraid to give myself to you? What a mistake. It is not even I who would give myself to you, but you who would give yourself to me. Take my heart. See, friends, burning the plow Barbecuing the oxen, surrendering all to Christ, it's never, ever easy. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ bids a man, he bids him come and die. Dying is never easy. I don't know if you've ever watched someone die. It's a horrible, arduous, awful process. The body doesn't want to give up. Our flesh does not want to die. But it's like Fenelon said, there's no happiness outside of him. There's, there's nothing there. There's no life outside of him. So you might as well get on with it. You might as well burn the plow. That's the first point. Being a disciple requires us to burn the plow. But secondly, learn to serve. Look at verse 21 of uh, chapter 19 of 1 Kings, the, the first passage Paul read. It says this, Then he arose, Elisha, and went after Elisha and assisted him. He assisted him. So Elisha became, and I'm probably going to confuse these two names. I don't know why the prophets got such similar names. It's kind of a, a biblical joke. But Elisha became Elijah's assistant, and many of you know, if you've worked as an assistant for a long time, being an assistant is a hard work. You know, you work your butt off, and most often you don't get very little to any recognition at all, right? And Elisha was not the assistant prophet in Israel. He was the assistant to the prophet in Israel, much like Dwight Schrute, right? This is not a glamorous job he's got here, right? He just, whatever Elijah needs, he does it. He's the assistant, and he was the assistant to Elijah for 18 years. 18 years before we come to this passage where there's this, this transfer of mantle, transfer of power. And we need to realize from this that most often our discipleship is just not glamorous. It's a lot of serving this person. It's a lot of listening to this person. It's a lot of praying over this person, cleaning up after people, moving chairs and tables. I had one pastor tell me that about 80% of ministry is moving chairs. I think it's about right, especially in here. Like, we move our chairs around a lot. It's not glamorous, right? It's a lot of ho-hum, you know, just everyday kind of work. It's very rare that the Lord allows people to right away jump into the spotlight, right away to get onto the big stage. He knows it's not good for us, for one. And for most of us, it would ruin us, right? So what does he do? He tucks us away in a humble life of servanthood, 
until we're ready a lot of times for a more public role. And sometimes that more public role never even comes, right? But the serving is extremely important to the life of discipleship. Very, very important for us to learn to serve. Think about it. David was a shepherd boy before he ever became king. Samuel assisted Eli before he became prophet. Um, Andrew, J- Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were all fishermen, you know, living in obscurity. Um, before they were called to follow Jesus, and then even it took three years of ministry with Jesus before they became leaders in the church. All of those people tucked away in lives of humble service, humble work. And so we're neither to run towards or away from the more public roles. If God wants to make you a more prominent leader, that's up to him. He can do that if he wants to, but we just simply accept our roles as servants. That way when the time may come where you get a, a, a bigger, more public role like Elisha gets here today. You're ready to say what Jesus says in Luke 17.10. He says, so you also, when you've done all what you were commanded, simply say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Not very glamorous, right? Jesus says, that's what you ought to say at the end of your life. We're just unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. And the awesome thing about serving being the primary call of discipleship is you can do it anywhere. You can do it in any job, any place where you're around people, you can fulfill this task, right? Any, any occupation, there's always an opportunity to serve other people. You certainly don't need to be in professional paid ministry. A couple of examples of this, Brother Lawrence, he, he always comes to mind. He was a guy that, um, that went off to live in a monastery, and his primary roles there were just serving. He was a cook working in the kitchen, but he, he made it his ambition to spend every waking moment in the presence of God, right? Just practicing the presence of God. And um, he carried out this office of cook until his leg became ulcerated, at which point his superiors assigned him an easier task as sandal maker. So he went from cook to sandal maker. I don't know if that's a, you know, promotion or not, but it doesn't seem like it. Lawrence suffered from a kind of sciatic gout that made him limp, and worsened as the years went by. Well, gradually, the influence of the humble sandal maker grew. Not only among the poor, many learned people, religious and ecclesiastics, had esteem for him as well. Despite his lowly position in life in the monastery, his character attracted many to him. He had a reputation for experiencing profound peace, and visitors came to seek spiritual guidance from him. The wisdom he passed on to them in conversations and in letters would later become the basis for the book, The Practice of the Presence of God. Today, there's over 22 million copies sold of The Practice of the Presence of God, one of the best sellers in all of Christian history. And he had no idea that it was even printed. Actually, he requested not to tell anybody about these letters before his death. He became famous well after his death. He just lived a life of humble servanthood. Uh, Mother Teresa is the same way. I was reading a story from Susan Conroy. She actually found out, hey, when Mother Teresa was still alive, I can go and serve with her and be around her. What an incredible opportunity. So she took one summer, she was a college student, and went and served alongside Mother Teresa. And she said this, I began working right away with the abandoned and malnourished children. One of the many special things about Mother Teresa was seeing how she treated each individual with whom she came in contact. When she lifted up a tiny newborn from a crib in the orphanage, that little baby became her whole world. All of her love, care, and attention went into that little one, that little life in her arms. When she interacted with a destitute man in the home for the dying, that poor and emaciated human being became her whole world. 
All of her love, respect, and attention were poured into that one human life as if no one else even existed. And each time Mother Teresa spoke with me, a young volunteer from America, I became the beneficiary of all that love, attention, respect, and care as if I were the only person in the world to her. She was so great and so well-known and yet so unaware of herself and so humble. See, friends, Mother Teresa learned to serve and love in obscurity for many years. This is what really forged her character so that by the time she became world-renowned, she didn't care. She was just enjoying letting the love of Christ flow through her one person at a time. So learn to serve first. That's something you're going to need the whole way through your Christian journey as a disciple. So you burn the plow, you learn to serve, and then thirdly, be apprenticed. Be apprenticed in community I have here. Elisha was apprenticed by Elijah to the point that, look, when he's taken up from him, Elisha, Elisha cries out, Father, Father. He wasn't his biological father. This was like a spiritual father to him, right? And he has this tremendous grief because he was so close to Elijah. And this kind of relationship we learned a couple weeks ago at Christmas is possible because God adopts us. And when he adopts us, we are given a brand new family, right? We become brothers and sisters um, and children and mothers and fathers all in one great multi-ethnic family. And in that context of deep and loving relationships, we learn all about what it means to be a disciple. And many of you know this, but I came into this church 20 years ago as a 20-year-old guy with lots of zeal and very little wisdom. Lots and lots of bad ideas coming out of this guy. And uh, you all apprenticed me and discipled me and have worked with me and blessed me and prayed for me and, and corrected me and, and journeyed along with me for 20 years, just a little bit longer than Elisha was with Elijah. And hopefully I've been able to teach you a few things too, but this is how it works. In the context of community, we're apprenticed. We're discipled, not by ourselves, but with someone. Now, some churches and Christians are going to emphasize the importance of having a one-on-one -on -one mentor, like you see in this passage here. Elijah to Elisha, right? Um, Yoda to Luke Skywalker. Uh, Mr. Miyagi to the Karate Kid. And, and I think, honestly, deep in our hearts, we kind of crave that. I've had countless conversations as a pastor with people that say, I just really want a mentor, Pastor Dave. I just want that person to walk alongside me every step of the way. And I get that, and I think God can bring that. Occasionally, he does bring that into your life. But I also think it's dangerous because you put so much emphasis on one person that a lot of times we stop looking to God. And if that person's not really careful to point you always to Jesus, like, wait a minute, I'm not your mentor, it's actually Jesus. It's Jesus, it's Jesus, keep looking to Jesus. You will, you'll put that person in the place of God. And I've had a couple mentors um, who have had massive moral failures. And it can be really warping and disorienting. And so what I've learned is that it's, it's, I think, better to have kind of a bullpen of people that are pouring into you. Not everybody's got the same gifts. Not everybody's wise in the same areas. And so lots of Christians that you're growing from, that you're being mentored and apprenticed by, is a good thing. All right? But the big thing is that you're apprenticed. And a lot of us, honestly, when we come into God's family, we say, ah, I'm good. Me, just me and Jesus, right? You've heard that before. I don't need to be apprenticed. I don't really need anybody. And this is why when you get baptized here at Life Church or when you become a member at Life Church, we actually have you verbally confess your need for the rest of the body of Christ. Because it's a lie that we can believe from the enemy that we don't need anybody else. 
And the truth is, all throughout Scripture, we absolutely do need to be apprenticed. Basil, an early church father, said it like this. He said, when we live our lives in isolation, what we have is unavailable, and what we lack is unprocurable. See? Nobody wins. Nobody wins when you decide to do it all alone. What you have, nobody else gets, and what everybody else has, you don't get. It's, it's, it's a double negative, right? C.S. Lewis said, we are one vast need. We're one vast need. And when you approach discipleship that way, like, I am one vast need, then, then you're more humble and willing to be apprenticed by others. Lewis goes on to say, it was one of the Wesleys, I think, who said that the New Testament knows nothing of solitary religion. We are forbidden to neglect the assembling of ourselves together. Christianity is already institutional in the earliest of its documents. Now, I can already hear the arguments. I sit with people all the time that say, Pastor Dave, I love Jesus, but I don't like organized religion. Or I love Jesus, but I don't like the church because it's so full of hypocrites. It's so full of sinful people. And I'm like, yeah, come on in. You'll fit right in. You know, come on in and join us. Um, because that's the thing, right? Like, church is not a place of a bunch of awesome, cleaned-up people. It's more like a 12-step program. Like, we're all here going, Hi, my name's Dave. Uh, I'm terribly sinful, and I needed a Savior to rescue me. His name is Jesus. That's how I'm doing everything I'm doing now. And I still mess up in following him on, uh, you know, on top of all that, right? That's what it's like. We're not a bunch of holy, awesome people. We are becoming holier and awesomer as God makes us more like Jesus by the power of the Spirit. But we're a bunch of weak, broken people that can admit it because Jesus has done everything for us. Right? That's what brought us to Jesus in the first place. We said, I'm so weak and so broken and so sinful, I have to have a rescuer come from outside of this world to save me. If that isn't the church, I don't know what is the church. Right? And so I get it. The church is a weak and broken place, but this is how God has designed for us to grow. We need to be apprenticed in community. And Luther, back in the time of the Reformation, of course, he was quite critical of the church around him. But he said this. Farewell to all those who want an entirely pure and purified church. This is plainly wanting no church at all. If you want a perfect church, please do not come to Life Church. It'll be very disappointing. But I honestly don't have much hope for you to find any church because they're all filled with us and you. Anywhere, any church you go to, you'll still be there, right? And so it's going to make it imperfect because you just showed up. And so I just think it's important for us to take a chill pill and realize, like, yeah, the church is going to be full of sin and hypocrisy, and we're trying to do our best. We're trying to admit our faults, but we need to be apprenticed. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. At the end of the day, God has designed us to learn and grow in this broken community we call church. He doesn't want us to be lone rangers. And no doubt Elisha had a front row seat to all of Elisha's, or Elijah's stuff, right? He saw all of his garbage. He saw all of his weaknesses and failures and foibles, and yet he needed to be apprenticed, and so do we. So burn the plow, learn to serve, be apprenticed, and then finally receive the power of the Spirit. You know, Elijah was a great man. He represented Yahweh to the nation of Israel for many years, saved them really from worship of Baal. You, you remember um, he defeated all the prophets. And just think about just think about his rap sheet. Think about his his stats as a prophet for a minute. He did some incredible things. He closed up the heavens. There was no rain for three and a half years. Called down fire from heaven to consume people a couple of times. Called down fire from heaven to consume a sacrifice in a big showdown with the prophets of Baal. I mean, these are 
I don't know, I don't know anybody who's called down fire from heaven. This is a really big deal. He did it a couple times, you know. Um, he multiplied flour and oil in the home of the widow Zarephath, resurrected her son when he died. This is amazing. He told uh, Ahab and Jezebel the dogs are going to lick their blood and eat their flesh. It happened. Prophesied all kinds of things. Did all kinds of other miracles. I think the story of the bears mauling was connected to Elijah. Or is that Elisha? Shah. Ah, gets me every time. Can't keep these straight. But, you know, he's, he's the one that God spoke to um, in the still small voice after the, after the wind and the earthquake and the fire on Mount Oreb. Then in our passage today, we see that with his mantle, he divides the Jordan River, and he doesn't die. He's one of two people in the Bible to escape death. Instead of dying and going through the awful pain of dying like everybody else, God's like, I think I'll send you a cool escort, like fire, fiery chariots. How does that sound? This is incredible. What a life. You don't even have to die. You just get taken up to heaven. That's a, that's so, those are some incredibly big shoes to fill. If I'm Elisha, I'm thinking, how do I top that, right? And yet, look at this. Apparently, everybody knew this day was coming because everybody's warning Elisha that his master's going to be taken away. But then Elijah goes to Elisha and says, hey, what do you want when I'm, when I'm leaving? What's kind of your last request? And Elisha nails it. He says, I want a double portion of your spirit. Like Elisha knew, as great as Elijah was, it wasn't Elijah. It was the spirit of God that lived in Elijah, that's what he requests so that he can be the same kind of prophet that Elijah was. And after Elijah leaves, what do we see? Well, Elisha's request is granted, right? Because he goes to the water, he strikes the water, and he says, where is Elijah's God? The water's part. And God says, basically through that miracle, I'm right here. I've been the power source all along. It wasn't really Elijah the man. It was the Holy Spirit filling Elijah. And nothing could be more important for you to understand as a disciple of Jesus than that's where your power comes from. It all comes down to God's Spirit giving you the power. And you might have lots of Christians that you admire. Some of them you're even convinced walk on water. I have a really high opinion of, of so many people in this church. But I'll tell you what, it's not them. It's the Spirit empowering them. It's the Spirit living through them. As long as you keep that in mind, then in your discipleship, you'll be driven towards like, Lord, give me your spirit. I want your spirit to work through me. I want to be empowered by your Holy Spirit. Remember the scripture, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. One of my favorite ministry quotes, and I'll be done here in just a minute, comes from Corrie ten Boom. Uh, she's one of our Dutch grandmothers, and she said this, I try to think about this so often in ministry because it's so tempting to try to do stuff with our own gifts. But she says, trying to do the Lord's work in your own strength is the most confusing, exhausting, and tedious of all work. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then the ministry of Jesus flows out of you. Isn't that true? Those of you who have done the work of the Spirit, you know, when you're trying to kind of drudge up something from in you and just using your gifts, it's like, man, this stinks. But when the Holy Spirit's flowing out of you, it's like, man, this is, there's nothing better than that work. And I've walked with lots of different Christians in discipleship groups and in um, life groups and in accountability groups. And I'll tell you what, it always comes back to this. As we try to simplify what it means to be a disciple, it comes back to this one thing. Hey, just walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5, right? You walk by the Spirit, you don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh, and you do all the things that God has asked you to do. That's what it, that's what it boils down to. 
It's that simple. Holy Spirit, will you fill me? Holy Spirit, will you live your life through me today? And that's where it really gets exciting and fun. You know, I don't know where this message finds you today. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're so thankful that you came today. We're so grateful. And maybe it's that while you're sitting there, the Holy Spirit is drawing you to the greatest mentor who's ever lived and who is still calling people to follow him today, Jesus Christ. He has died and risen again from the dead to welcome you back into his family, to welcome you into a life of discipleship. It is not going to be easy. Remember the burn the plow part? You're still going to have to do that. We don't want to sugarcoat that. The life of discipleship is costly. It's very costly, but you get everything that matters. And so we would invite you to come to Jesus today. There's going to be people up here to pray with you. For the rest of you, um, I would really like to start this Lent season. We don't have an Ash Wednesday service, but I would like to start this, this season just with some prayer, asking the Holy Spirit for kind of a reset and to kind of just speak to our hearts. And maybe it's repenting of something, um, or maybe he's like, there's the plow that you need to burn this Lent season. There's the thing that you need to give up. And Jeannie's done some wonderful artwork for us, um, this heart of chains, and that God can break the chains that come around our hearts and she's got this cool little activity for us. There's some black paper and some pens up there. And if you have something that you feel like the Lord is speaking to you to say, hey, that's the thing that I'm asking you to give up. Maybe it's a sin struggle. Maybe it's um, a security kind of thing that you've been holding on to that takes the place of the Lord. We just invite you to come up afterwards and jot down on a black piece of paper. Nobody can read it. And then fold it up. And Jeannie said, you can just put it in one of the chains. Because our God's the one that can break the chains. And some of us need that this Lent season. Um, for others of us, maybe it's more simple, just like, hey, I just need a simple refresher. I just need a simple reset. Help me to stay focused on the main thing, discipleship being the main thing, being a disciple and making a disciple. For some of you, it might be like, hey, I need to get in some community. I need to be apprenticed. I'm kind of riding this thing on my own. Whatever it is, I, I want to just pray with us and give us a moment to pray silently as well, and then the worship team will come and close, all right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text today. Now, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just invade our hearts. Weak as we are, broken as we are, we ask that you would give us everything that we need for life as your disciples. Um, as we read the, the Gospels, Lord, we know that your disciples had their share of weaknesses. And part of that is encouraging to us that, that we're not disqualified because we're weak. But I pray that you would strengthen us, just as you did the disciples in the book of Acts, that you would strengthen us now for life in your service, for life following you, that you would help us to get rid of anything that's getting in the way of that. You'd speak to us right now, Holy Spirit, just that one thing that we've been holding on to that's getting in the way, that's locking us up, that's chaining us up, and we'd abandon everything for, for you for the call on our lives. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.